And oh, there's one. These are some exciting products. Let's all think about buying some of those. You guys already took all my money. What are you talking about? I can take you down for more, Buster. So use your credit card. Yeah, this guy wants my card. That's all I want from you. I've read one of those. Really? Yes. Let us guess which one. Is it porn? No. And that really slims it down. Well, not mostly. I didn't think it was mostly porn. Or which one, please? Uh, set up from the end. The hero. Yes. What are you talking oh, about? Someone That's not smiling. Poor. <laughs> that is Sarah Peel. Yes, I met you at AC. Oh, really? That's right about the book. We are one big happy family. <laughs> of course. You're missing one. I know. You know You're why? missing the most popular one. Sold out. <laughs> what am I going to say? I know. I'm hoping people will come back. Uh, you get signed more and you edit this out. Yeah, they did that at AC. They came back with the books. Well, I'm hoping that they will. Okay. So yes, one of the uh, one of the other totally excellent books that we uh, that we have is unfortunately not here because it's sold out to all. Wait, wait, could you could you say that again? Sold out. And again? Sold out. <laughs> one more. Sold out. I love you. <laughs> this is how my love life works. Ha! <laughs> Publish books and eventually it gets me there. All right, we are pretty well stopped, so we're going to get started today. Uh, we're going to deal with more advanced narrative techniques. Now, I need a cool chair to sit on, but unfortunately, we're rather limited in the selection that we have available to us. Uh, you'll notice that today, I'm going for the full turtle mic. Unfortunately, it's a little bit warm, so it's going to down the side. This is fashionable. Fashionable. It's not zipped, unzipped far enough. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. A bit of bra or a bit of Let's uh, maintain the mystery. <laughs> I'm glad I've been able to retain some felines. That's usually uh, very hard attention to keep. Well, I happen to be an author, so. Oh, really? Oh, no, no. Let me rephrase. Let me rephrase. I'm an aspiring author. Well, that makes you a writer. And I think writers are better than authors, because authors have to deal with all sorts of concerns that have very little to do with writing. It tends to spoil their fun. But in exchange, they get money, which... <laughs> also, authors have egos. Uh, that's in the plus column for me. <laughs> OK. Now, who was here on Friday? Define Friday. <laughs> wow! Another holdover from the feline panel, I see. Uh, Friday, uh, named after the Norse goddess Freya, uh, comes before Saturday, named after the Roman god Saturn, who I believe was an interpretation of the older Greek god. Can you help me out with this? Not at all. No? Okay, a solar god. I didn't know he had those. They have gods for everything in Rome. Except for, uh, uh, let me see, what was the Mel Brooks joke? We got gods for everything except for premature ejaculation, but I hear that's coming. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, poor artists borrow, great artists steal. You see how I'm setting up a little entourage for myself and the people that, uh, that get dragged in here quite late. So those of you here on, on Friday, have we defined it well enough for you to give an answer now? Let's see those hands again, because I was, I was, I was busy. Yes, okay, excellent. Good to see you all. Uh, who was here yesterday? 
I have a loyal following. I can deal with that. So you've been looking forward to uh, my sage advice on more advanced narrative techniques. Now, Friday we talked about the fundamental story, a structure, a skeleton which you can use, from which you can hang the rest of your story. Now, unfortunately, it's still your own responsibility to make it entertaining uh, and exciting and interesting. But whatever the genre is that you're using, you still have to keep it gripping for the reader. Now, there are a couple of tricks that you can use. Most of you use them already. Uh, because they're simple literary devices. Uh, there's more seats up here, but you uh, have to unfortunately bear being closer to me. I think, yeah. So what today is going to be is going to be a fairly short and incomplete list of tricks you can use. These are in no particular order, and it's entirely your own responsibility to use them wisely. However, uh, because we are discussing them individually, hopefully you'll get a better understanding of their usefulness uh, and their use. Let me start with two that I find quite interesting. Yesterday, welcome, come and sit down, shut up. Can I do it? <laughs> Is this visual storytelling? Yes. See, I don't know, it, no, it isn't. This is an advanced narrative technique. I don't know why they left the, the, the panel up there. Visual story was yesterday when we had Kamui come in quite late and provide us with some much needed entertainment uh, and handsomeness. Actually, I didn't notice that they messed up on the uh, Google here, too. Oh, sure. Well, there's there's two versions of that. There's been, oh, there are many errors in the printed pocket program, and there are many on the display board because the device that actually gave the information to the display board was kept outside in the rain. All we can say is, Bad Dog Boot Camp Session 3, Advanced Narrative Techniques, with Alex, you know, what's his name? Welcome. We'll start off with two that I find are very interesting. Now, yesterday I uh, waxed prosaic about my love of cinema, or I should say love, more education. Um, Hitchcock had a very clear idea about the distinction between suspense and surprise. Now, yesterday, somebody, I wonder if they're here today, mentioned uh, uh, Anthony Chekhov's um, adage about if you, put a mantle, uh, if you put a gun on the mantelpiece in the first act, yes, uh, then you better be prepared to fire it by the fourth. We also segued into bombs under tables. Now I noticed that nobody has checked, so this will be a surprise. <laughs> Which brings us to suspense versus surprise. Hitchcock's description was, if you take a scene, some people are having dinner, just enjoying themselves, having a conversation, and the camera is able to see a ticking time bomb under the table, that is suspense. If the camera is unable to see it, and the table just explodes, that is surprise. This sounds fairly simple, you know, this is what you'd expect, uh, but they're actually very sophisticated ideas, and it's very, very important that you understand while you're writing which of the two you're using and how you're blending them. Because, of course, when you're writing, it feels very natural. You just go with the flow. Um, you write a scene as you feel that it needs to be written, or as it's writing itself, uh, as some experience it. But to exert a greater deal of control over the, uh, the experience of your reader, which is what a good writer does, um, you have to be more self-analytical. So, for example, the, uh, uh, the time bomb under the table. Playing with the <coughs> reader's expectations and uh, um, either heightening them or turning them around, crucial. So when we've got the, the bomb under the table and we can see it, it's very important that not only can we see it, we know that the characters don't see it. Um, at this point, the bottom of the table provides context for everything that's happened. 
their conversations can no longer just be casual conversations because they are all, in the reader's mind at least, tainted by this knowledge of impending doom. So whatever they say has um, a twang of tragedy to it because if they're talking about you know where they're going to go after dinner, we know that they're not going to go anywhere after dinner. So it's kind of important. It, it's a trick. It's a trick. Once you once you establish this suspense, once you establish impending doom, if you do all of these rather arch, rather uh, uh, explicit, uh, little dramatic uh, dramatic terms. Uh, where you can enhance the tragedy of a particular character. Oh, she's going to get married, never been kissed, touched further. It's oh, such a shame that she's that such a fresh flower should be plucked before someone, you know, uh, uh, blossomed her bud, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Moving on. If you look at Theo Sanders, nothing but wrong. We can handle whatever it is you have to say. I understand, and yet, nevertheless, the mention of. Girl parts still sometimes has people freaking out. It's like a it's like a fifth grade school. I see people pulling on each other's pigtails. Love me. <laughs> Welcome. Come sit down. Um, actually, we we are going to get back to that later on. Amusingly enough. Now, surprise is a very tricky beast. When you're doing suspense, all you have to do is make sure that you don't go over the top. Um, and that you don't bore your reader because you can take you can stretch suspense out for a very long time uh, because it doesn't have to be a bomb on the table it can be well something as serious as cancer it can be um, let me see uh, uh, an adulterous relationship that one party doesn't know about uh, that sort of thing those are those all count as bombs on the tables uh, uh, that we can see welcome there are seats here so you can be closer to my magnificent self right there Oh, totally. Yes, he, he glows. You know you want to do this it. Is, uh, <laughs> this is my better side. No? Coward? <laughs> They're afraid of your radioactivity. I know. It's covered by my lead heart, though, so it's okay. <laughs> now, surprise is a tricky beast. Surprise will either elate or infuriate your reader. Relate them because they utterly weren't expecting it, and suddenly the story has turned magnificent. Um, or they can be incredibly disappointed because everything that you were doing up to then uh, has become irrelevant, and they may feel like they've wasted their time. <coughs> Surprise is used in all fundamental stories. We talked about that on Friday, the fundamental story. The crisis at the beginning is the surprise. Um, because we didn't know about the bad guys, we didn't know about stormtroopers coming to Tatooine, we didn't know about dark riders coming to Hobbiton, and yet all of a sudden here they are starting their shit. Uh, that is an effective and acceptable use of surprise in almost all circumstances. You can't have a crisis without uh, without avoiding surprise. Welcome. No. But yes. Fine. Come sit through the chairs. Sit where we can see you. Yes, please. Here. Hiding in the back is not good. No, exactly. Plus, no, I'm naturally tall, so I, I don't like looking up at people. Sparks are here. Yeah, but the sort of the density of people is lower, but the quality is higher. Ah, 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 ah. Represent. Yeah. Totally, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Same do as the Romans do. I even learned to say bitch in Californian way, batch. <laughs> there are other uses of surprise as well. Um, one of my favorite ways to use it, um, so I'm letting you in on a trade secret which uh, absolutely none of you must ever use, the way to establish a character as being an incredibly 
important or capable or dangerous or attractive or whatever, just preternaturally amazing, is either to show them doing amazing things, which sort of makes it seem like a, a, a Mary Sue, for those of you who don't understand the term, I'll get back to it later. Um, let me see, Anne Rice does that very well or very badly, depending on how you term it. She really shows these characters doing these amazing things, feeling these amazing things, and really sells it. Some of us are too lazy for that, and we'd like to take the short route. So what you do is you don't show the character, but you show people talking about the character, you show people responding to the character in question, remembering things. Because at the end of the day, we are all social animals, and our opinions are formed by the opinions of others, or they are at least influenced. So when we, as a reader, are sitting in a cold, dark room with nothing to keep us company but a book, the opinions of some of these characters will actually matter to us uh, because we are so very, very, very lonely. So you can use a... Uh Another character as a foil for your... Uh, your oh, precisely. Character. Precisely. Hannibal Lecter's creepiness is established by the walk. Exactly. It's it's Clarice and the, the, and the warden that totally sell him. Yes. Not to mention the fact that this also tosses in the, uh, the, the question of how trustworthy is each character? Because you can have someone saying, Hannibal Lecter is the most awesome person ever. He is such a great cook. It's true. <laughs> 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 it's true and it's an excellent point, but um, very rarely will uh, will a writer toy with that. Very rarely will uh, will a writer want to uh, to mess with his audience that way, because the audience is generally going to accept information that that people give at face value, unless you emphasize that there is some some inherent untrustworthiness about them. Now, obviously, this is different in mystery writing. Mystery writing deals almost entirely with the trustworthiness of sources. Most locked room mysteries uh, are solved by assuming that a piece of information that you got is not actually true, because the person may be lying. The person, in fact, usually did it. Uh, actually, it was recently, it was only very recently that I, uh, that I explored the original locked room mystery. The locked room was, um, so, a body was found in a room that was locked from the outside, so they had smashed the window um, and turned the key in the lock, which was on the inside, and go inside and find the body. Uh, and there was a huge mystery around it. I actually forgot who the, uh, who the author was. I didn't even bother to read the whole thing. I just read the cliff notes on Wikipedia. That's what makes me smart. <laughs> I read it five minutes before a panel, then I go in and rehash it completely, and you all just quiet. It's great. <laughs> so, the conclusion was um, that it was the murderer who started all the shit. Now, how did he get the key on the inside of the lock? Where instead of taking it with him so he could lock it on the outside, well, that was the trick. He killed the guy, went outside, locked the door, yelled, alarm, 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 someone's been killed, ran in, punched through the window, put the key in, and then opened the door. So, yeah, in those cases, the trustworthiness of, 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 of sources is, uh, uh, is very important to draw in question, but for the most part, we tend not to do that. It tends to sort of muddy the experience and when the reader is being overly critical of uh, the veracity of the testimony of uh, the characters, he will also be very critical of your work instead of giving it the benefit of the doubt. So let them take it easy uh, and you'll have an easier time of it as well. So you are doing what I told you to, namely to uh, establish a fabulous character by having people say how fabulous he is. Um, and it's at this point that you can actually bring the character to the foreground and reveal entirely different aspects of it. Now, 
the reader will immediately intuit that these aspects of him, perhaps, yes, Hannibal Lecter was a great cook, uh, but he also ate people. Uh, these things can come to the foreground, and these will uh, register as fantastic surprise. Um, but they will also be accepted, because now they have the true source of information, namely you, the writer who does not lie, um, are telling them what, uh, what, the, what the truth is about this character. So surprise, being like any literary tool, is, very, is a very two-edged sword. Suspense has the problem that it can lead to boredom. Surprise has the problem that it can lead to uh, disappointment and, uh, and frustration. Uh, now you giggle, but that is actually the problem with uh, with using surprise. Yes, run for the hills, run. I know, I know. Isn't it great? Now I totally understand why everyone comes to these panels to be abused. I'm sorry, to be abused. Oh yes. I mean, I get it's, it's a, tricks. <laughs> Excuse me. Tor. Is the correct Latin? Uh, yes. Um, unfortunately, we only have one hour for each of these panels. It's usually only after two or three hours when everybody's stamina sort of wears down that I really break out the heckling and the abuse. Aww. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> are we done with suspense and surprise? Because these are, these are very important. I mean, I've just exposed a couple of ways that these can be used. Um, as I said, these are very plain and boring and commonplace concepts that you use all the time. But what I want to do is to convince you to actually think about what you're doing. When you're writing uh, a particular scene and you know something bad is on the horizon, is the tablecloth lifted and can they see the, uh, the bomb under the, under the table? Or should you actually drop it and save it? Weigh those options. There's no clear-cut formula to do that because it depends very much on your writing style um, and on the kind of readers you attract. However, letting the audience in on it, audiences always appreciate that. They do like they do like being in on what's going on. Uh, another thing you can do is uh, simply give them partial information. For example, you can have let's take this, take the yes. The system. Let's say that you have a uh, a table with a bomb in it, and the uh, the camera can see. Yes. Um, the camera cannot see, but the character mentions that oh boy, there's. Something that I keep kicking, you know, underneath the table that is, you know, obviously not part of the framework or the legs. I understand what you're saying, and I do believe that there are writers that could do that. Personally, I have never been able to make that work, um, and I am quite good, but I'm not by any means brilliant. Some of you may naturally have an affinity to be able to do this. The problem that I find is that you can never provide enough information. Uh, without giving it away. I can never find that middle ground where there is enough information that uh, it becomes utterly plausible and, uh, uh, and, and it's a Dutch term, that for itself speaking. Self-evident? Um, Self-evident, why thank you. Um, without going so far that they can actually guess it and I'm unable to, to deliver the surprise. Now, uh, yesterday, when we brought up the uh, Gone on the Mountain piece, that was an example of uh, uh, where visual storytelling has an advantage over uh, textual storytelling. Yes, you can put the gun actually on the mantelpiece, uh, and it can be right there, but as long as you distract them with sleight of hand by putting something really interesting in the foreground uh, and hiding it among some other details, they won't realize it's there until they go back and see it again after you know, the gun has been used. Another thing you can do is something like uh, have the gun on the mantelpiece, and then the character tries to run over the gun to uh, use it or something, 
but uh, ends up doing something else. So the reader is attracted to the gun because every everybody knows that a gun can you know do some serious damage. It's a little less obvious to use the form of a book or a so you were talking about the mingling of suspense and surprise. The suspense of we see the character running toward the gun, we know that he's going to kill someone, the surprise that he doesn't pick up the gun. I guess so. Or that, uh, well, I guess so. Well, I think that's perhaps taking the, uh, taking the concepts that I'm presenting a little too, too literally. Uh, these, are, these are tools to be used. You don't need to overanalyze them. It, they're tools that you need to be comfortable with. and. The only way to really be comfortable with them is to exercise them and to realize what you're doing. Um, I understand, especially in this panel. Whereas the okay, the, the first panel that I gave, that was really useful information. That was something that helps a lot of writers that they that they tend not to think about. Yesterday's panel was perhaps a mistake to try to cram such a varied topic into a single panel. I should have absolutely spread that out over a couple more days. I know that you guys would have loved to move your flights to hang out with me just a couple more days. Of course. Today's panel is, um, is actually a lot harder than any of the others because these are things that you guys already do. This is not new information. But I'm trying to get you to think about them in, uh, in, in, in new ways. And it's going to take you a while to, uh, to exercise them to the point that you, can, that you can actually do new things with them. But it will make you stronger writers. The reason that it's hard for me is that I'm still just a writer, same as the rest of you. I haven't been better than a lot of you. Uh, and I'm wearing a turtleneck. But um, I certainly have my limitations. And there are areas in which, uh, in which my skills are limited, um, in which you guys just naturally exceed me. So while I'm totally doing the, uh, the dominator thing and, uh, and asserting uh, my primacy over you all, please do understand that we're very much on the same level here. Now, this doesn't happen to people very often when they're in the same room as me, so enjoy it while it lasts. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't I tell you? Legendary modesty. OK. And he writes his own biographical sketches, too. I will shortly. Uh, often paid, by the way. So we have some more uh, clever tools to use. I talked about tragedy a bit. You can actually use that as a, as a tool in itself. Um, it's. Uh, Using tragedy as a major theme of your book will immediately isolate a segment of the masses. Some people really respond to, uh, to tragedy. Let's take uh, a fantasy trilogy, the Farseer trilogy by Robin Hall, which I was forced to read by some uh, friend of mine who was very attractive. So if I read the book, I got to spend a lot of time very face-to-face -face with him. That was, uh, uh, it was a price worth paying. But it was a very bitchy and whiny book. Uh, the main character spends a lot of time being very unhappy. Uh, imagine Harry Potter never getting out of the Dursley's house. Book after book after book, and it gets worse and worse and worse. And there are moments of tremendous heroism in there, because that's something that, uh, uh, that setting your book in a very low, depressing, uh, unhappy register um, it makes those moments of heroism really shine, whereas if it's a, if it's a very happy-go-lucky, uh, uh, shall we say, rollicking story, um, you're not going to get such a punch out of, uh, out of the big scenes. 
You will, however, get punch out of the sad scenes. Yes. Like Bambi. Definitely Bambi was the example that I was actually going to use for the reverse, and thank you for skipping ahead You're about two minutes of my material. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Already our minds are becoming as one. <laughs> the other way around, yes. These are not the plot points you're looking for. <laughs> okay, so Bambi, the other way around. Bambi, happy-go-lucky, actually, uh... Only Come on, that Emerald Shower book. song? That's... I'm sorry? Okay, Bambi, you know, the movie was this, you know, frolicking, happy-go-lucky movie, so yeah. we're monetized, but if you read the book, it's, it's very, the it's exact a lot more opposite. Like, a lot more like Watership Down, a lot more about uh, about survival and, uh, and death, that sort of thing. I haven't read the book. Did you see how I just no, totally got away with that? Yeah. <laughs> Practice this. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> An English degree is good for that, too. Oh really? I thought it was rather detrimental. Most of the people I know with English degrees tend to burn out and they read comics on the toilet and that's about it. That's the market we're going for with Heathen City, by the way. That's me. You have to be constipated to enjoy War and Peace on the toilet. Isn't that your target audience? No. <laughs> that was my target audience. Just bring it back down to the topic of our hand. Get your minds out of the car. You're blocking his snorkel. <laughs> so, okay. I was going to use Bambi as an example of the antithesis of what I'm talking about now, but it's actually a bit of a change. Those of you who remember uh, on Friday, Bambi is very much a coming-of-age story. We have the equilibrium that starts singing and dancing, everything's happy. Crisis. Mom dies. Quest. He has to make some new friends. Or is Bambi a he or she actually? Bambi's a boy. Really? You could have fooled me. <laughs> <laughs> and I like being fooled that way. And finally, he grows up, and uh, and everything uh, and everything works out great. Um, However, in this, for example, this Farseer trilogy, or any other story that has tragedy as its, as its sort of base emotion, um, these tend to skip the equilibrium and, uh, and the crisis and just start with the quest, because the quest is, is the dark forest. So if the dark forest is, is the, the, the setting for your entire book, um, they just skip two portions of the fundamental story. And, it's a great way to get started. I love to do that because that makes those moments of heroism look so much better. But the challenge is to keep the tragedy still somewhat appealing. It's a downer. People tend not to like it unless there is some some spark of entertainment in it. Now, in Heathen City, I'm doing that with, uh, uh, with a degree of cynicism, a degree of tongue-in-cheek humor. So while the circumstances may be dire or inhumane or unpleasant, to, to, to great and to small degrees, there's still this sense of, you know, it's just a story. It's just a bit of fun. You get lifted out of it every now and again. And it's a cheat, but that's exactly what we're talking about here right now. Manipulating your reader, giving them some relief. This brings me to the next, and to me, most fascinating, uh, most powerful, and most dangerous literary technique known to man. The joke. <gasps> I know, right? Totally. Delivering a joke is such an enormous risk with such an enormous payoff. It's, it's high-stakes poker. So there are people who... Uh, ben should write comedy, and I'm trying to make him do that, but apparently he has a very hard time doing it. Every now and again, he slips in a little... And it's, and it's never overt. Uh, it's never, you know, it's never a full-on pun. It's just a little play with words, it's just a little metaphor, it's a little snappy dialogue 
that really lifts the mood uh, and breaks the tension. And people need this when they're reading. As awesome as it is to give them a long, grueling experience, um, look at Lord of the Rings, uh, especially in the second part, which is very much what we were talking about, the, the tragedy. Uh, that was the dark forest. Uh, they're in the mountains. There is clearly no food. Uh, their, their survival conditions are worsening and worsening, and it's very hard to watch. So every now and again, someone does something goofy to lift your spirits. And then you can, you know, take a breath, eat some popcorn, whisper something perverse to the person next to you, have a drink, and go on. Um, the judicious use of jokes is something that I absolutely can't teach you. Um, so it's at this point, I've actually reserved uh, um, about 10 to 15 minutes for discussion of jokes, because this is something that you're going to have to figure out for yourselves uh, and bitch about. So you gasped at the mention of the jokes, so you totally know what I'm talking about. So hit me. What are your perspectives on the uh, the use and hazard of the joke? Yeah, no, I actually pointed at you. Me? Yeah. I didn't gasp. No. You, no, you gasped with the with the yes, you. <laughs> you, you, yes, you're pointing at yourself. She's trying to waste time. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> you. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. And now he's called you out. You're uh, stuck. You can sit here. <laughs> if you want. She's breaking up. Okay. Um, no, come on. Uh, what, what are your. Being able to uh, butcher a joke is uh, the entire time that I've been here. I try to slip in jokes and uh, I somehow can trouble it easily. Hmm. That's pretty much the problem with using jokes and books. It's one person in 20 is going to laugh, thinking it's the funniest thing they've ever read. Everybody else is going to look at your book like it's stupid. I know, but I don't But at least you don't have to be when they do it. <laughs> yes. I know, but I have dark humor. So, so uh, the sadist in me is laughing his ass or her ass off. And the, oh, um, but it's lit there. And the, um, everyone else I know, and everyone who's looked bothers to read my books. Sits there and goes, oh jeez, oh my god, okay. Well, even that is not so bad. Even that experience of cheesiness, it's still, uh, it allows the reader to reset their emotions for a second. Uh, I see some eager hands. Actually, I'm going to skip you and go to the guy at the back. I'm so yeah. used to this, by the way. <laughs> this is what we call justice. You. Uh, one series I think does the uh, joke, joking to break the tension well is the novel version of the Dresden Files. Ah, interesting. Tell us about it. Um, the main character, as he even mentions it, that he has this thing where, under tension, he has this tendency to wisecrack. Right. He is a wizard in the Chicago phone book, and uh, when he's getting ready to do these <clears throat> epic wizard duels, he's like, and where did you learn your cliched villain dialogue? <laughs> okay, this is a this is a cliche of um, noir, especially where they can uh, they can get away with it. noir. Is actually a genre where the joke is used very rarely um, because it's a genre that has such a, sorry very little humor. Yeah. Well, yes, generally, but it's it's because the core uh, the basic emotion of the genre, which is this this cynicism. Um, is actually something that can be sustained without exhausting the reader. 
uh, look at Blade Runner. Blade Runner is a very, very long film, and yet it sustains your interest. Um, because that particular emotion, that, uh, that cynicism, that fatalism, even though it's unpleasant, which makes it a beautiful base contrast for heroism, um, for some reason, adults at least, uh, don't have such a problem uh, dealing with that. Actually, the reason why is because uh, generally people, and I've heard this from the MLS, uh, people like to feel emotions. So yes. even if it's terror or sadness or something else other than humor, it's still something that is an enjoyable experience. There are some emotions that cost more calories to experience than others, though, is what I'm, is what I'm saying. You know, you can laugh all you want, but actually wasn't a joke. <laughs> I saw your hand go up. Um, there are like three different things. One, I think an excellent use of humor in an unrelentingly grim movie is uh, No Country for Old Men. The dialogue that What's-His-Face is throwing out is just wonderful. Uh, the, 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 what is his name? Tommy Lee Jones is throwing out his little country witticisms, as it were, is are you just absolutely spot on. Um, the, best ex the best way I know of to learn how to tell jokes in literature is to read British literature because they seem to have the, the kind of reserve that lends itself to uh, sustaining a situation. And Neil Gaiman in particular. You, as an American, would think that. <laughs> well, but it works over here because it absolutely the, does. The it third thing does. is that over here we have a tendency to have the joking character who's continuously wisecracking, and it basically undermines the use of the joke in the first place. That character can have his uses. Um, the comic relief. Target. Sorry. Target. But the Asian guy over here. Yes, I knew you were going to look at me. <laughs> the comic relief is the target. Oh, God. I understand. Well, uh, thank you, Kato. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Because now, see, when you try to kick my ass, you're just reinforcing the stereotype. <laughs> um, the, uh, the comic relief can work very well. Unfortunately, um, he's a broadsword as opposed to a scalpel. When you drop in a comic relief character, either he utterly fails to sustain any kind of interest, and he's, and he's just in the way of the plot. But when he's really successful, he will steal the scene. He will steal it, you know, he will pull the rug out from, uh, from under everyone. I was reading well, like uh, the clown from, the clown from Lear. The, um, the clown, was that Falstaff? That wasn't, no, 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 that was uh, the clown. The clown in Lear wasn't Falstaff, he's just no, a clown. I'm sorry. What, you had an example? No, no, I was just wondering if I uh, stole anything from you again. No, perhaps. Maybe. I don't know, you Asians have a reputation for big <laughs> so, uh, By the way, I've seen two fingers going up. I'm totally coming back to you guys, don't worry. Um, an example is, uh, oh, it's a furry book, actually. Uh, a very good one, not published by us, but by our, uh, our good friends over at Soul Wolf Press. We have this wonderful sort of non-competitive competition with them. It's great. So I feel absolutely no shame in, uh, in recommending a book that I don't make any money on. It's called uh, Common and Precious. It's set in their uh, New Tibet uh, universe. They came out with uh, an anthology of stories, some of which were written by uh, uh, furry celebs. Um, after which I think it was the second novel by Tim Sussman uh, uh, in this series. New Tibet is this ice planet uh, full of Arctic individuals and it's, it's all very grim and very dark. 
Um, there are hospitals full of people that are understaffed, and there are crime-ridden mining cities. Uh, space travel takes so incredibly long that by the time you arrive, your mother is dead, uh, or, and your grandchildren are dead. Um, so it's very glim, grim and, and, and bleak, and the story follows uh, um, the kidnapping of a wealthy uh, mining magnate's daughter by uh, uh, a team of, I, I, I think they're maybe separatist rebels or whatever. Uh, very early on in the book, both of these groups are established as both sympathetic and uh, uh, perhaps a bit morally ambiguous. The separatists are only trying to survive. Um, the, uh, the mining magnate, while he is a tyrant, still clearly loves his daughter, and his daughter is a bit of a ditz, and at the same time very, uh, very worldly and, and uh, emotionally fragile. So it's this, it's this, it's this beautiful clash of two uh, two opposing parties where you actually don't know who you want to win. And then there is this guy, this ferret called Cab, who walks in and steals the show. He just lights up the scene with his witticisms and with his. Um, with his fantastic little wisecracks, and he is so cheerful, he just melts the snow and everything else stops mattering for a while. So I know Tim Sussman really wrestled with him, um, and actually thought of, uh, I think probably he gave serious thought to getting rid of Cab, but if, you, if you're into that book at all, if you've read, actually, if you've read uh, uh, Ben Gush's book, uh, White Crusade, you might be very interested in, uh, in Common and Precious. Now, the only reason that I recommend Common and Precious at this point of the call is because we've sold out of White Crusade. About, by the way, can we have a round of applause for selling out of Ben Goodman's White Crusade? I didn't get to buy it. I know, we'll totally get you a copy, don't worry. It's going to charge me double. Yeah, yeah, that's what we do. Um, Actually, I have a question. Yes. Uh, if you, if it's physically impossible for you as the writer to create anything other than one of those uh, constant joking characters that are a little bit annoying, is it better for your story if you end up killing them or getting rid of them or having a bad situation? No, that is that is entirely up to you. That is entirely up to uh, to what you're doing. But it is possible to uh, um, to sprinkle humor in a more responsible fashion. Um, Joke responsibly. <laughs> enjoy it, but. Responsible. Um, for example, if it is a crucial aspect of a character to uh, to have a humorous response to a certain situation, to keep it fairly limited, like you mentioned the, the Harry Dresden in the, in the Dresden Files, I actually haven't read the book, so I don't know how he responds to non-stressful situations. Uh, oh, an example in in television is the television series Firefly, which died before its time. Uh, the spunky little pilot, Coburn Wash. Um, he is constantly wisecracking, he is constantly witty, which at the same time amuses us and exposes his incredible vulnerability and weakness compared to the other very hard-boiled, strong characters around him who very seldom joke. Um, I think that's important because he's not cracking jokes to be a jokester, he's cracking jokes as a stress relief mechanism. As a stress relief and a defense mechanism um, and to create a, a perimeter around himself um, to prevent certain expectations which he knows he couldn't meet. So What's also interesting is that it's used in very stressful situations, like when they're being chased and, and, and fired upon, he will actually be completely calm. He'll be sitting in the chair, uh, piloting the spaceship, and the laser will flying past, and he'll just calmly reach for the button to ask for a cup of tea or whatever it is that he needs at that point. But <laughs> I, I should hope not. Uh, you have one more point to make? Uh, oh. I just want to say that I can't see your head. 
That yeah. kind of character is wonderful, but if you kill them, you will ruin your entire story for everyone who loved that character. No, no, you can do it. It has to be motivated. It has to be motivated, it has, it has to do the story, and it is such a nuanced problem that we are not going to make arguments one way or the other, like except to state examples. I'm going to be very firm on this. No, but uh, I'm talking about yes. a character that is constantly joking and is getting on people's nerves. Sort of like, uh, you know that stupid win uh, witty banter they always have, or sometimes have, during uh, just before a battle in Dragon Ball Z, I don't know. <laughs> wow, oh, he's, he's the guy that, um, you, you know, know all about that. Hunter uh, <laughs> 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 Libra. The guy who, who, who uh, jokes too hard and everyone's like, what a douche when he's not around. Yeah. <laughs> Killing off a character like that, or uh, or just having something bad happen to him, because uh, that character is deeply annoying and is constantly subtracting away from the, you know, the, the wonderful tension of the, the movie or the whatever. Yeah, well, yeah. I consider that okay. You could use some I have, uh, characters like that. Good ways, though. I've I've seen several times where they've actually uh, sacrificed themselves for. The rest of the characters, which is very, very noble of them, which gets them off of the way. Gets, <laughs> that's, gets the that's risky, also, though, because I often don't buy it. You know, I'm like the guy who's sitting yeah. around joking all the time, and all of a sudden he has this morbid, mortal moment, and I'm like, oh, stop whining. You know, <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, has, really to, it depends, has to fit with the character. It really depends on the quality of the writer, because yes, when the uh, when the jokester suddenly turns serious and sacrifices himself, you create a situation where the reader experiences something that they actually weren't expecting to experience, namely guilt, because they, to quote your president, misunderestimated this character. She wasn't such a douche after all. She wasn't such a douche after all, and we really should have given him more credit because now he's just gone, and you can never apologize. And that's a Big shock. I mean, we uh, young writers, especially, and I'm talking very young, uh, uh, like in the teens, they're extremely uh, bold and brave in translating their angst into extraordinary violence. Uh, look at anime. Anime is caters at the caters to those. Uh, uh, I know you know about <laughs> Caters to those audiences. You have really, really hardcore animes in uh, uh, in there. You know the kind of topics that we would dream of dealing with in the West. With the exception, possibly, of Spawn. Spawn is an example of uh, angst translating itself into extraordinary, unfair violence for uh, for teens. I wouldn't classify Sin City in uh, in that area because that was just that's just very much entertainment. But um, the translation of this this angst into extraordinary violence and a very callous and throwaway uh, 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 treatment of activities such as dying and killing. Um, that works for younger minds, but as we get older, the concept of mortality is actually quite serious. Um, so it's up to you how you treat that in the story, because if you treat it in the story as, as something that gets very little attention, then yes, it's not going to bother people so much when someone dies, because they're, they're just a character at the end of the day. However, you can also take the time, especially a character that people didn't like, if you can get them redeemed, just a second before dying, which is a cliche, but all cliches start out as good ideas. Um, you, can, <laughs> you can get them to, uh, to actually pause. They may put the book down for a second, which is okay because you know they'll pick it up again. Um, and actually consider it may reflect very strongly on, uh, uh, on some life experiences that they had. Um, and that can actually be a very powerful tool 
to, uh, to grip your reader and to reset their emotions in another way. So to summarize again, we're talking about killing off an annoying character, uh, redeeming them just before it, um, and introducing the notion of, uh, of mortality, which tends to quiet us, especially in the West, which tends to quiet us down a bit. Uh, you'll notice it in this room. I hear no more giggling, and uh, uh, you know that's that's only to be expected. After which, I mean, this can be a big watershed moment in uh, in your book. If you pull this off correctly, if you manage to uh, to give your reader pause, after this you can proceed in an entirely different register. You can go much more slowly. Um, you can count on a lot more respect from your reader for your characters. Uh, your characters obviously can feel the effect of the death of this uh, 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 of this jester. Um, it can be an incredibly powerful tool, and it's used fairly often, but not so often that uh, that it's really cliche, and not so often badly that it's left a bad taste in people's mouths. Yes. Are you saying a new crisis opens up pathways for uh, a new quest? Um, you could you could put it in those terms. I would prefer not to. Uh, uh, no 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 joke. I would prefer not to uh, not to hang too strictly on the on the fundamental story. What we're doing today is a is a very different beast than uh, than what we were talking about then. I'm not trying to sloganize you into a bunch of Maoisms. No, it's, I wouldn't let you. <laughs> I have a tough hide, and it just wouldn't happen. You had a question. Um, I was thinking, he's not a jokester, but the uh, incompetent lieutenant in Terminator 2 who opts to blow himself up with the tough woman is a, a very good example aliens. of someone. Aliens. Uh, yes, sorry. Yeah. Aliens. Thank you. Vasquez uh, and Hicks, no, Gorman. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was, that's a very, a very moving moment for me because this guy who nobody likes, yes. you know, he's dragging everybody down and he manages to turn himself around there. And now, I think if, if I be, went back to watch the whole movie again and watched his arc towards that, that that's the key to making him a motiv motivating it. That I can read it again and see it see it coming. Um, I haven't partially. seen that film a couple of times because it's, it's a very good action film. Uh, Aliens, uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. I happen to like science fiction, but these are very, very good. Yes, okay. <laughs> very good and innovative action films that have established uh, um, a lot of innovations that are now so cliche that we don't even recognize them as so important. Uh, I could go on about them, but that would uh, that would eat up our minutes. So we're going to stick with uh, Vasquez and Gorman um, in the air ducts, being chased by uh, uh, being chased by aliens, and they sacrifice themselves to save their buddies. Now, without uh, speaking to each other, they uh, I think Gorman pulls a grenade, and he looks at Vasquez, and she sort of agrees, and they sort of hold it together and pull the pin, and then they explode, and everyone dies. It is very important that Vasquez, who is this tough female character that you have to respect her. She's done some impressive things. Uh, I mentioned earlier that a great way to establish a character as being tough and impressive is to have people talking about her. She didn't need that. She just showed it and sold it. Incredible. But that scene, that redemption for that irritating Gorman character would not have worked without Vasquez being there, holding his hand and saying, you know, I approve of you. I, I actually redeem you. This transmission of respect from the person that we as the viewer respect the most um, actually sells it. So this was a this was a very good decision on the part of the scriptwriter. Also, because if Vasquez survived until the end of the movie, then uh, Ellen Ripley would have nothing to do. <laughs> um, yes, I think that's a that's a that's a very good example of uh, of redemption. I'd actually wanted to treat redemption uh, uh, much later in this uh, in this panel, but oh well, there we are. 
Um, I have been ignoring you, and you are now ignoring me. You had a question a while back, and I wonder if it's still relevant. No, I'm ignoring it. I'm <laughs> <laughs> drawing little stick figures, if you didn't know. Really? Yeah. Show they're me. actually quite good. Bring them up to the front of the class. Share <laughs> <laughs> them. copious notes. Okay, that is... Yes. Uh, I'm not that rude and callous. Have I been talking that much? <laughs> uh, actually, yes. <laughs> you filled several pages. Yes, right? listen, to your, listen to your tape, doesn't it? Do you remember my writers and you're not rude and callous? <laughs> I'm soft and squishy, what can I say? Well, that's what he said. Writers aren't rude and callous. Authors are rude. Yeah. Authors are the ones with egos. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and you wonder why he's picking on you now. I'll just pick on him because he's a squinty eye. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Send him out to Alice Go, go, go. Being thorough, I think we've had enough of the joke, and seeing as we only have. Six minutes left. I'd like to go on and get maybe one or two more in. So I'd like to call that 16, I'd go to be from honest. being a writer to an author and actually have a big fat ego that will smother everyone in the room, as is, as is being exemplified up in the front for everyone to see. I'm sorry, what? Exactly. <laughs> um, the phone call that I just got was actually quite interesting. You were all going to have to, uh, to join me after we walk out and I, uh, and I answer the phone. Because I may have something to show you that will be quite impressive. Or maybe not. Will it give us burners? Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Except, you know, see now everyone's interesting. That's suspense. So, <laughs> we've had suspense, we've had surprise, we've had the joke, we've had uh, redemption, and we also discussed uh, mortality at the same time. Um, sentimentality is one that I use very rarely. I use as rarely oh, as a joke. Um, okay, I am a closet romantic. It is on tape, it is, uh, I can't take it back now. <laughs> He's gonna edit that out later. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're annoying banter. <laughs> you're crazy agent would speak. I'll find a way to sneak it in, don't worry. I got another recording. <laughs> really? There's suspense. <laughs> Sentimentality. Sentimentality. Um, I find that the same way that uh, um, sentimental writers, and this, this isn't necessarily a bad thing, but sentimental writers uh, use tragedy uh, very sparingly and to great effect. The same way... Um, to endear you to a situation. Sorry? To endear you to a... Uh... No, I'm talking about, I'm talking about sort of uh, 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 numerical occurrences, quantity. Uh -huh. Sentimental writers use tragedy the same way that fairly cynical writers use sentimentality. It's a, it's a highlight. It's a little, it's a little burst of, of, of life. Let me see. I think the book was Imagica by Clive Barker. Great big homo, fantastic horror writer. Um, <laughs> there is a scene, either it was Imagica or it was another one. Anyway, um, there's a, a side character who is gay and who, who's just really a side character. You, you can take him or leave him. He's kind of okay. Um, who does no specifically heroic or cowardly things throughout the book. Until at one point he is tasked to protect a baby from some, some very unfair people, and he puts the baby in the car and, uh, and tries to drive away. Now, for us, this is suspense. You know, this is clearly a, just a time bomb on the hood of the car because he is he is incapable of providing any kind of uh, protection unless it turns out that he has some special uh, uh, some special qualities, which he don't, 
which he doesn't. So what happens is, this is actually one of the most touching things that I've ever read. Um, they are in a car crash. The gentleman obviously uses his body to protect the baby. And the situation suddenly becomes very, very quiet. And Clive Barker starts writing in this extraordinarily low-key register. Um, and it only lasts for a, a fraction of a second. It only lasts for like half a page, where it describes that, uh, that this man with this mangled body um, is protecting, uh, uh, protecting the baby. And with his last breath, he says the words, uh, I'm here, and then he dies. Now, this is really, really simple, but the sentiment is that as this person is dying, and we talked about the significance of mortality and redemption, because he was a pointless character who showed extraordinary heroism, because he knows he can do no more for this child. He knows that uh, that he's going to die, and he uses his his last opportunity to do something, to do something tremendously wise by reassuring the child, who prevents it from screaming and therefore being found. And you know, he actually manages to save the baby. Um, through this act of extraordinary cleverness, because we talked about uh, uh, earlier, I think it was last time, how, uh, how heroes, while they can be strong and capable and resilient, we like it best when they're resourceful. So this is an example of someone displaying the best quality of a hero, namely cleverness, resourcefulness, um, at the most crucial time. So sentimentality. It's actually something that I can't give you a whole lot of advice about because I'm speaking about using sentimentality uh, as a highlight as opposed to uh, writing from a sentimental register. Because can you distinguish? I'm not exactly sure what you mean. Okay. Distinguish it from like other forms of emotional writing. <laughs> well, or or the, is is it that? Uh, steel magnolias. I have a mother, therefore I've seen steel magnolias. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Not I believe the movie there is at one point a death and a funeral. Now that is so. For the rest of the time, it's this incredibly warm and and uh, uh, social uh, uh, story that represents old timey values and um, shows off the the good life. And then there's a dip. There is there is loss, and you realize that this is also a part of life. And it slows you down. You take pause and you think about it for a second, and then you you sort of continue in a much more modest register. So their tragedy was used very briefly and to great effect. Likewise, in the book, and, I, and I'm not entirely sure if it was in Magica or the Damnation Game, but anyway, one of Clive Barker's books, where you had this really hardcore, really dark, 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 depressing, um, tremendously exciting adventure unfolding. Blood spilling left and right, everybody's dying, it's fantastic. And then all of a sudden, there's this note where somebody dies and it's, and it's so tender and vulnerable and meaningful, and you, you've been, you've grown calluses from from simply uh, turning the pages of this cynical, hardcore book. You're feeling very tough, and all of a sudden you realize that, you know, you still have a beating heart because you have been distracted from that reality for so long. The same way that in Steel Magnolias you've been distracted from the reality of mortality for so long by having such a good time, that all of a sudden there's this there's this sudden moment. Um, this brief, abrupt friction of uh, uh, two realities brushing up against each other, and you realize that you can, that you that it's going to take you a while to marry them together. So when Imagica, when Clive Barker's book continues, um, there is a much greater sense of uh, um, of importance of life. And when people die left and right, it actually affects you a great deal more. So it was rather wise of Clive Barker to save that event so long 
It lets you get used to people dying left and right, and then all of a sudden you realize that it's actually kind of important. That's when, that's when you start experiencing real tragedy when people die, like it was in Steel Magnolia, um, after the death and the funeral. Now, honestly, I actually don't even remember if for certain Steel Magnolia had a death and a funeral, but let's go with it. After it's happened, um, as they slowly return to having a good old time, you realize that there was an incredible wisdom in there. There was wisdom instead of naivete in the way that they were having a good time uh, in the beginning. It sort of recontextualizes what was going on. So, bringing it down to summarizing a little bit, as I said, we're going to have a fairly short list, fairly unrelated literary techniques uh, that you can use and that are important to think about. We've had, we've talked about suspense, surprise, the joke. We've talked about redemption and mortality. Um, We've now also talked about suspense of uh, tragedy versus uh, uh, versus sentimentality. Um, there are very many more. We could we could break this into a Q and A session, and we wind up with a list that's very long. Because as I say, while I am incredibly talented and skilled and beautiful and experienced, uh, there are limits not to the beauty, but there are limits to the uh, uh, to the skill in which. You guys, no doubt, exceed me to a great degree. For example, the uh, very refined gentleman over there writes sex exquisitely. Like, don't even laugh. It's not. It's it, it, it's not even porn. It's about just the exquisite nature of of, of intimacy and how wonderful it is, um, which is something that I absolutely cannot bring myself to do. Um, and that very many people who post their stories on the interwebs really should pay more attention to, or preferably just stop, if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah, keep going. Uh, that said, do you have any pointers, oh, sex machine writer god man? <laughs> oh. Yeah. You? Yeah, you? Yeah. There were five people in that general direction that you waved at, so... I know, it's awesome, isn't it? <laughs> the gentleman is actually kind of under my wing, so if he decides to decline, that is his right, and uh, I'll speak in his uh, in his stead. No, I don't have any point. I don't know what In other words, fuck off. <laughs> Learn to write and stop stealing my material. You know, if he wanted to teach you how to write, he would have done a panel. <laughs> He's keeping his wisdom all to himself. The Greek Read his books and learn. Well, well, you hey! hey well, there we go. We have, let me see, everybody loves Luther. Beautiful college romance, uh, the, the, the budding romance between a, a, a charming and fairly innocent young Dalmatian student and uh, uh, an aging widower, uh, mathematics professor I believe he is. No, not that there's any wish fulfillment there. Oh, certainly not. <laughs> <laughs> and then he did this amazing thing where he wrote a sequel. Uh, about a, a fairly side character in here, except the sequel is set about 20 years later. So this guy's all grown up, where he was this spunky little sex pot. Uh, he's all grown up and he's a spunky, big old sex pot. And <laughs> <laughs> these actually, actually, um, explore sentimentality in a way that I find incredibly useful and, uh, and constructive, because it's big old rollicking fun, um, with moments of sincere, pensive thought. Actually, I can't believe that I uh, that I didn't do this with Taryn, with uh, with the hero, hero Taryn sitting over there, uh, also for with, with some literary merits. Otherwise, the band on Pope's logo wouldn't be on. Um, it's a rather tragic tale. Uh, the protagonist is this innkeeper's boy who is treated very unfairly. It's very very Oliver Twist. Uh, falls in love with a noble knight, who then sort of kind of ditches him. Um, 
and it's his tremendous innocence and naivete that drive the story. Uh, because anyone with even the faintest hint of cynicism would have just given up, and then uh, you know it would have ended after 20 pages, and we would never have gotten to the sex. By the way, the hero illustrated by Ayame uh, Emaya, or is it the other way around? Somebody help me out. Ayame Emaya. Ayame, that's the one. Beautiful pictures. Uh, it's also one of the reasons it sold very well. <laughs> now we have a couple of minutes left, I do believe. Actually, I'd like to mention one last thing. The uh, the next thing that gets into this room doesn't start till seven, and right now it's about five. So that's what I was gonna say. You may so be able you to have plenty of time. Can we have some com com confirmation from the? Uh... Well, um, well, usually we need to stay on time, unfortunately. But maybe you know, I'll give you guys five more minutes. After that. Five more minutes. Well, Feline's ran a half hour long. That's why this is true. Nobody in here until Wolf Rescue at seven. Right, but just we need to keep on schedule. Uh, that's according to the events lead, so. We got another like, kind of lounge area here. We can open the doors. That is true. We can just open the doors and stay here instead of being in a lounge area. Okay, what I then want to do is I would like to invite you all to uh, take five, uh, get something to drink, get something to eat. I'm going to make a phone call so I've got something impressive to show you all. Anyone who's had enough, I will completely understand and respect it. The night is young, and we have uh, we have other things to do. Uh, I personally have a hockey game to get to in uh, in about half an hour, so that's about all we uh, oh, we're going sure. to do. I feel very appreciated. Oh, totally. You're bringing us. I told you I'm straight. <laughs> Come on, Pedro. Let's bring it on. Okay, everybody, take five, clear out, and uh, and we'll figure something out. Ow, my legs. <laughs> Where do you want me to be? Whatever. I, I actually. Oh, they're my phone now. These are available in the dealer's den. Actually, if you want to buy any of these books, now is your only opportunity because they close in an hour forever. Forever. Okay. Where is it? Yeah. Okay, that's excellent. Okay. Totally. Totally. We're on our way. We're on our way. Yeah. Totally. Hey, everybody, you all want to come with me and see something cool? Yeah. Everybody, if you've got a camera, now is the time. Come on, grab your stuff. Get up. Let's go. This way, we're heading toward the dealer's den. Have we got everybody together? Yes, we're doing just fine. Enough. <laughs> Enough. Never mind. Oh, wow. All right, how did you do? Oh, yeah. Totally. We have billions of them. Want a heathen city one, too? Shiny. Shiny, you get your own shiny, don't worry. Okay, everybody catch up. Come on. 
Will you read anybody's manuscript? No, I actually have very little time to read, but uh, anyone who sent me something, a couple of pages, is, uh, is, what I'll, is what I'll devour. So if you got something, mm -hmm. No, not off, not off. I got some or something, but nothing special. So as soon as I have something finished. Well, bad luck looks so far. You know the deal. I shall. Thank I you. like your little thing, it's the measure of my professional success. Hey, come with me. Come check oh, it out. Have you seen it? What, 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 what? Come what? on, come on. Oh, that one. What, what, what the fuck? Oh, because I was in the middle of the panel and we've broken it up so we can, uh, we can go see something cool. This way, this way. Everybody still following? Yes, we're doing good. Make way! Now it should be coming up here. Why is it Oh, come check it out, it's great. <laughs> now, of course, the irony would be if the uh, gentleman phone had lied to me. Oh, they went to the different way. Come on. Is that not awesome? You know how much trouble it took us to get that finally hung up someplace? The thing is enormous. Oh, yes. As subtle as uh, triumph and will. Now, totally, yeah, this is coming out in, uh, in, uh, in the summer, probably for Anthrocon. The baddest Asps comic you have ever seen by an incredibly talented and handsome, skilled writer. We all know him. We all love him. I just wanted to show that off because it took so much effort to get it up there. These were... It's such a relief to finally see it up there. Anyway, back to the action. Come on. Did you see it? What is this? It is that banner up there. Come on. Oh, the Eden City. It took so much time to get it up there, I just wanted everybody to see it. Who's down to us? Center. Center. I'll use that. I like the idea that I have a very wide stance. Yes, please. You know your limits. Hmm. It's about like. Uh, I can't say that I have, no. So that sort of ends this conversation. That puts it way out of my league. Right.
really cool. <laughs> I don't think contrast him with Charles Bronson's character in Death Wish, who's also, an actual architect and haven't seen it. It's a completely awful movie. Really? Yes. I would never have been able to guess. <laughs> oh, I think it spawned three sequels. Of course, it's a bad American movie. By the way, who are you and what do you do? Me? Yeah, you have a very big mouth. Oh, uh, What's your name? And so you have books? No. What do you have? Oh, I love it. Hey. Uh, his badge name was Tarek. Tarek? It's the Wyatt Piper. Hey, hello. And here are all the uh, the rats of Hamlin. Oh, please tell me that Terran brought the books back and that they haven't just been robbed. It's a lie. 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 What are you doing? Illustrate the metaphor asses and elbows. Asses and tailbows. I can walk into a room without causing havoc. I promise you. Cheer up. Cheer up. Anyway, we, we talked a lot about um, jokes in a character's perspective, but what if, um, you know, I find that a lot of books are written in a very lighthearted way? Mm. The use of the non objective narrative. Now, Let's take a history lesson and go to Don Quixote. No, not history. Yes, fuck off. Literary history. Literary history, it's fun. No. Who has read Don Quixote? I've seen the movie. You've seen the movie? There's a movie? In fact, this is a book. There's a couple. <laughs> so, uh, if you've seen Don Juan de Marco with, uh, uh, with Johnny Depp, Ooh, Johnny Depp, then you've also seen uh, Don Quixote. Or The Man from La Mancha. With music. That's all. Uh, Don Quixote um, marks the introduction of the novel as we know it. Because previously there would be one of two uh, voices in a book. One would be the protagonist. The entire story is told from the perspective of the protagonist. Two, the narrator. And the narrator is the author and is true. It's, it doesn't mean that he's right, but he is true and he is honest, which the protagonist would be as well, although possibly limited by his, uh, by his perspective. Um, it was Don Quixote that introduced an entirely new concept. Now, 
Don Quixote is interesting for other reasons as well. It was a parody of the uh, uh, the, the chivalrous adventure, um, while at the same time being the epitome of chivalrous adventure. If you, if you, if you think of any, any kind of romantic chivalrous story from that period, you will think of uh, Don Quixote, because it was the best. It was really the best. Uh, whereas actually it sort of came in at the tail end of that trend uh, and was the conclusion, the death knell uh, of that genre. Why it's interesting to us and why I bring it up at such length is uh, that it introduced the notion of the non-objective uh, narrator because the person who was telling the story um, was also wrong, was also quite clearly an idiot. Um, so you'd have, you'd have Don Quixote, who is quite clearly an idiot, uh, Sancho Panza, who is the voice of reason, and the whole story is being told by another idiot. This was quite a shock to people who read it, because they weren't used to, uh, uh, to criticizing um, the narrative. They weren't used to actually thinking that uh, the, the, uh, the voice was idiotic and stupid on purpose, that the voice didn't represent the author. So, bringing it forward to your question about, uh, uh, about the use of comedy in, uh, in the narr narrative voice, Absolutely. If you can get away with it, you do it. Take. Um, uh, can I give you the best people at it? The Russians do it regularly. It's called skaz. The tendency is to have a narrator. I mean, yes. that yes. the, the person tells the story. You see it in Gogol's tales. I mean, it's it's it goes with Russian oral folk tailing. I mean, it goes way back. It's just totally built into their literature. There's almost no serious book of Russian, even War and Peace. You know, I mean, yes. Uh, you know, all of it. Has and sometimes extreme, like in Kangaroo by Yuz Alashkovsky, a book I can't recommend enough. Absolutely hilarious, you know, narrator character who's obviously wrong and drunk half the time. Right. <laughs> um, but the Russians seem to me to be the best at it that I've ever found. So is that somehow uh, making a uh, narrator less omniscient or? Oh yes, absolutely. Um, or is that just it is, it's one of many things that you can do with the narrator's voice. By the way, Terry, you brought the books back. Yes, right? I did. Okay, excellent. I'm going to the books. I would have taken them. I know you would. I don't understand why you guys even put me behind that table. Because you don't work for us? <laughs> it's sure. kind of pretty. You totally should. <laughs> but we don't trust two Asians with money. Oh, come That's on. The so as soon as we get a credit card system, then yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, You'll find ways to there have are the many things that you can do with narrative voice. Um, you you'll have to decide that for yourself because once you decide to uh, to weaken your narrative voice to show the reader no you don't have to take this completely seriously the reader won't understand the degree uh, to which they should not take the voice seriously. So when you're actually trying to, uh, uh, to use that voice to communicate something that is very important, you'll have to deal with the fact that the reader may not trust it. So when you're, uh, when you're providing sort of a handicap for your narrative voice, as in the narrative voice makes jokes, stars you call it? Or spas? Scars. Scars, okay. S-K-A-Z. Um, or you're restricting his omniscience. Um, be consistent. Uh, be firm and, and be very clearly delineated. 
this is very vague advice. It was a very vague question. It's really the best I could. Um, I'd like to. I yeah. sentimentality. I don't. I I don't like the word. Yes. And I I especially don't like the way it gets used in Western literature. Um, so I, I still want more of a distinction. You know, what is good sentimentality versus bad sentimentality? Basically, sentimentality is basically, um, um, like mom's walking down the road, you run over her with a car, you know, the child is alive, that's bad sentimentality. I mean, it's cheap sentimentality, you know. It's, it's I love you as a dying breath. Yes. <laughs> so it's easy to pick out gross examples, yeah. but, but, you know, well, the, 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 the dying breath, uh, uh, I'm here to reassure the child, was an example of uh, uh, heroism with a very sentimental slant. Uh, uh, Good sentimentality versus bad sentimentality is extremely subjective. You clearly don't like it, so I think that you should generally just avoid it. But this is a tool that you will never be comfortable with, um, and then why should you use it in your writing? It's only going to be a handicap to you, it's only going to be an irritation. And you, uh, being comfortable with uh, with a lot of other tools, will find other ways to tell the story. So it really doesn't have to be that relevant to you. Now, if you do want to explore it, well, brother, then you need wiser men than me to explain to you how to uh, to integrate it. Um, the reason that I uh, uh, that I addressed it in sort of numerical and quantifiable terms was simply to show how sentimentality, how a moment of upbeat, heartwarming, uh, uh, you know, romance can be used to break uh, a consistent theme of tragedy and to reframe it, to recontextualize, so you can continue uh, uh, telling your story in that sort of tragic, tragic bleak register. But because of that, that little spark of, uh, of romance that lasted just a second, the reader will interpret it differently. They will have a different context for it. Um, they may take it more seriously, they may take it less seriously, whatever. Just, I, I didn't want to talk about absolutely um, what it is or how it is used, just that if it is used as correctly and appropriately for that story, it will have a profound effect. So that if you write a tragic story or a cynical story, which I think that you are very, uh, uh, very much inclined to do, um, if you do introduce a moment of sincerity, then anything you do after that will be colored by it. That was the thought I wanted to communicate, because the discussion of what is sentimentality, what is good sentimentality. I have, I have 30 seconds on good sentimentality and bad sentimentality. So you face the head. All right. Uh, good sentimentality is valuing the weak, the transitory, the beautiful, the in, in, in your world where uh, only the strong survive. Bad sentimentality is to have a paper cut out of a princess stuck on a far, far wall and says, I've got to go save the princess, or, or I'm going to fall in love with the princess, the paper cut out that can't do anything because it's it's defined as, as being weak and therefore can have no value. Um, I would argue with that. The paper cut out can have its, uh, can have its value as uh, a motivator. Just look at the companion cube. No, 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 no. <laughs> very, very different. Fascinating topic. And if we're all willing to, I can't get into it. No. Leia, Princess Leia, was literally a holographic paper cutout in the film. Up, up until she, uh, she was rescued and she uh, grabbed the gun and uh, it turns out that she was wearing the patch. 
But yeah, okay, so the, the, the paper cutout can have value because the, the intangibility of the object of affection, um, you call it bad sentimentality, I call it just another trope that you can, another puzzle piece that you can use with which to construct uh, a decent story. If you're competent at it, if you, if you select puzzle pieces of the appropriate quality, if you treat them with respect, if you are strong enough to drop things that you like because they don't work, now, that would be another panel in and of itself. Um, we, don't, we don't talk about Jar Jar being a polite company. <laughs> so how do you think that Clive Barker made that scene work? What did he pave the way to get to that scene? Um, a persistent sense of uh, bitterness and cynicism in general. The other deaths, while, while certainly uh, um, certainly not without their impact, uh, were less pointless, uh, or more pointless, as in it was a completely irrelevant character, or it was a relevant character who died in a relevant way. Uh, I think also, I think also the question's wrong, I think also that this just appealed to me a great deal for a very intuitive and personal reason, which I may not understand, and which I may not be able to, uh, to verbalize. I took it as an example because it's something I had enormous impact on me that revealed this principle to me. Uh, because it happens to us all the time when we're reading, but you just you just internalize the experience in a very passive way. You're just experiencing it. Uh, you have this moment that affects you, and then you um, then you read the rest of the story in this context, and you don't know that you're doing it. Every now and again, you'll have an experience that's so profound that causes you to pause for so long that you realize that it's a trick. It's a fucking cheat. You're being manipulated by the writer. And now we want to do that too. <laughs> okay. Any other questions? We're gonna we're gonna sort of wind down. Uh, a lot of our companions have left. Are you ever gonna take off the shirt? Please don't get Now check it out. From your trash to white trash. What in Rome goes the thank you? Yes. I told you he's a woman. Now, <laughs> <laughs> um, what would be the equivalent of Actually, we're in an excellent position for the vagina model. <laughs> if you're vagina, The companion cube will be our closing topic. The Companion Cube is an example of truly extraordinary writing for a game. Now, who here has played uh, the Half-Life 2 spin-off game, Portal? I have. Right. Who here has heard of it? I have. Okay. Who here has played through the commentary track? I have. Okay. okay. commentary? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, and you should listen to it. Yeah. After you completely beat the game, you can go through the game as well, and there are these floating speech bubbles, and if you click on them, you become vulnerable to harm, and you hear a little audio track where one of the designers tells you something about what's going on in that particular Absolutely, Absolutely fascinating. So, I'm not even going to get into the mechanics of the game, because it may bore some of us to tears, but um, it, is a very, it is a very strongly written game, very short. Um, the gameplay is only about four hours, and basically the mechanics is... No, 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 no. we're not getting into the no, mechanics, but the, the point is, you are very isolated. You are the only living character that you encounter, um, and it's a puzzle game. 
with, with platforms and portals and all sorts of things. And all the while you're being accosted by this computerized voice who is incredibly abusive. And there's this tremendous sense of isolation and loss um, um, and being a guinea pig in a really, really horrible, uh, horrible maze. So this progresses. You are put through these various tests which you have to solve. Um, and if you don't, you know, if you fail, then you get an unsatisfactory mark on your report, followed by death. <laughs> the one-liners in that game are incredible. That is fantastic use of the joke, because you spend all this time in this incredibly bleak testing environment, um, trying to survive. There's this gruesome music that re that's really eerie, and you finally win, and then you get just the greatest punchlines from the uh, uh, from the computer to reset you emotionally and prepare you for the next one. Now, the companion cube has become an internet meme. It's extremely popular because there is one point. It's about uh, it's about halfway through the game where you are you are told by the computer that uh, you will uh, be given a way companion cube. It's basically no different from hey, a cube. Hey, hey, ego, ego, no. author. To reiterate whatever you say. Yeah, after I turn that on. Are we good to go? Okay. So, the computer tells you. I get to talk again. The computer tells you that you will be given a weighted companion cube, which will be your friend. Um, it also emphasizes that the companion cube cannot talk and will not talk, but if it does talk, please disregard its advice. The cube is just a cube. There are very many similar cubes throughout the game. The only difference is that it's a slightly different color and it has a heart painted on each side. It doesn't talk, it doesn't do anything. Um, the reason that this pop point was introduced was in early playtesting of, uh, of that level, they couldn't, they couldn't find a way to, uh, to make the players just pick up one of the random cubes that was available and use it because you need that cube to shield yourself from bullets or to, uh, to place yourself on a, um, to place it on a, on a, on a whatever. Um, so in order to convince people to uh, actually pick up this cube and take it with them, they just called it a companion cube. And it worked very well. Now they ran into another problem, where people became so stunningly attached to this companion cube that they would not accept the fact that they couldn't take it with them at the end. They would spend hours just walking around, finding, walking around frustratedly looking for a way to bring the companion cube uh, with them. So they had to introduce another notion at the end, namely that you had to euthanize the companion cube in the emergency artificial intelligence uh, incinerator, at which point they congratulate you uh, because none of the other test participants have ever euthanized uh, a companion cube quite as quickly as you did. So, on that bombshell, you can tell that the day is over. The shirt goes back on. No. Oh, yes. We have one more day tomorrow for those of you who are going to be here. I can't stare at the woman in my body anymore. <laughs> Want to see it like a man box boy? <laughs> you don't want to challenge me. I'm Japanese, right? <laughs> I don't know. You rolled up the light. <laughs> I totally love you. <laughs> hey, tomorrow, same bad place, same bad time. Those of you who are going to be available, we're going to have a little round table. Uh, Eric's going to be there. That is going to be there. And that is going to be very much about answering y'all's questions. Now, unfortunately, as I understand it, a lot of y'all are going home tomorrow. Uh, There's hardly anyone else available on Monday. 
that, that also. I mean, this is my first call, so I didn't know that that's the way it was going to go. If I'd known, I would have personally planned earlier. Oh well. Those of you who can show up, same bad time, same bad place. And for now, thank you very much for attending the third Battle of Camp Battle, and I would like some applause now, please. Uh -huh.